0: (laughs) okay let's let's find a seat we're gonna continue on this morning Everyone's getting good conversations. All right, will you pray with me this morning before we jump into God's Word together? (laughs) Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you to this place. God, we thank you that you are a God who is with us. We thank you that you, Jesus, came to this earth to be a, a living manifestation of God. We're so grateful for you to be Emmanuel, the with us God. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be in this space this morning, that you would be teaching us what you want us to know and helping us be formed in the ways that you're inviting us to be formed. God, we thank you for Sheridan School. We thank you for the faculty, the staff, the engineers, um, all those who serve the kids here, and we pray for those kids. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would remain in this place this week and that it would make a difference to everyone who comes into this building, God. We thank you for their hospitality. We don't take it for granted. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I got a pop quiz, this is, a, this is a, a culture pop quiz for just dominant North American culture. So think about, you know, just your average situation when you're meeting somebody new, maybe it's a dinner party, maybe it's a workplace situation, maybe it's Sunday morning before they give you the cheesy questions, okay? What is the question after you ask what someone's name is, what is like the, almost always the next question that people ask? What do you do? Yes, good, I thought through what would happen if you all said something different. I'm really grateful because I, I really do think that that is the question that is asked the most. What do you do? And what, of course, we're asking is like, what, where do you work usually, right? However, you could be asking what I said earlier, how do you spend most of your time? But typically when people ask that question, they're trying to get at like, who is this person? And I'm going to know who they are based on what they do for a job, right? And, and then beneath the surface, what we're all kind of aware of is that there's this weird kind of social status thing going on when it comes to what you do for your work. And so I know I'm not the only one that feels a little uncomfortable that that's the question that we ask. Does anybody else feel like we should have a better question? Okay, so I've been trying out a couple of them, all right? They haven't been going well, but I'll share with you how it's going. So I tried for a while just to say to people, hey, what are you about? (laughs) And I just got a lot of blank stares and I was like, never mind, what do you do? Okay, Um, another one that I tried because I genuinely want to know this question, which is, hey, nice to meet you. What are you passionate about? And I just got a lot of like too soon, too soon faces. Like that is not the first question you can ask me. So that one has not been working very well either, too soon. Um, And so I actually Googled, what are some other things we can say? And there's a lot of opinions on the internet about that. So here's some that I found. Um, What is the last picture you took on your phone? Can I see it? (laughs) Literally advice on the internet. Okay, another one. So what's your favorite emoji? Right, it's not, it's terrible. It's not gonna work. And then this one, I I really hope people don't ask this one. And it was suggested, so how do you feel like your life has worked out so far? (laughs) It's just not going well for us. It's just not going well for us. I was in a meeting this last week, and this meeting's been scheduled for a while. This person, you know, we've met once or twice, and I sit down in his office, kindest guy, and he looks at me with the nicest smile, and he just says, so who are you? (laughs) And it was awkward, but, you know, I thought, frankly, that was kind of nice that he asked. Because isn't that kind of at the core of all these questions? It's like you're trying to say to this person, who are you? (laughs) Like, who are you? And it's such an interesting question because it brings up the question, well, who, who am I? Who am I? How would I answer the question, who are you, if that was kind of right out there like it was in that office the last week? And honestly, I think that that question is sometimes a very nice one because it feels like someone genuinely cares. Who are you? What are you about? Those kinds of questions. But I know I'm not the only one that sometimes feels like in the world that we live in, the question isn't really, who are you? The question is really, who do you think you are? This tension around our identity. Like in the best days, you're sitting in the nice office like with this nice guy who's saying like, who are you? But on many days, I think, whether we feel this externally or internally, the actual question that we're dealing with is this weird kind of, who do you think you are? And I wanna say today, I actually think that's a very Important question, who are you? Our identity, something that we think about probably sometimes more subconsciously, sometimes more consciously, our identity, how we see ourselves, shapes our lives in profound ways, doesn't it? It shapes the ways we think about the world, the ways we think about our relationships, it shapes our lifestyle choices, it shapes the way that we engage or don't engage in community with other people. It shapes our political actions and our political choices, doesn't it? Our identity has so much to do with how it shapes our lives, And there's lots of things that speak into our identity, right? Sometimes cultural things, sometimes personality, sometimes our our backgrounds in various different ways. Sometimes it is what we do as far as our job. Of course it is. But ultimately, our identity is so important because our identity shapes our well-being. And shapes the well being of the people that's around us in our lives. Our identity shapes our own well being and the well being of those around us in our lives. And I just want to take a minute and take a snapshot of the well being that we see in our dominant culture right now. Because when I look at that, I see a lot of anxiety, I see a lot of fear. It's not even that those things are not warranted, but that's what I see. I see a lot of anxiety. I see a lot of fear. I see an inability for people to actually sit and listen to somebody who has a different opinion than them before they explode, maybe internally or externally. I see this inability to stay in the uncomfortable space between people who are much different than you and these kinds of things. This is what I'm seeing generally speaking, not speaking about anyone's specific life but I I think there's a lot of negative assumptions. So anxiety, negative assumptions, inability to listen, lots of fear. I would say that that probably means that collectively and individually, we're kind of in the middle of a pretty massive identity crisis. If someone were to say, who are you even nicely? How would we answer that? This feels crucial to us. So here's what I hope we can realize during the season of Lent. This is the first Sunday of Lent. Ash Wednesday was on this last Wednesday, and so if you've experienced Lent in your experience of church before or not, doesn't matter, we're doing it together, and our experience of Lent is counting down, counting up to Easter, and so we've got a few weeks here. Easter's the seventh week, and we're going to take each of these weeks to talk about this topic of identity, of who we are, and when it comes to who we think we are at the core of who we are, what if we let Jesus truly define that? What if we let Jesus truly define who we are at the core of who we are and that that would overflow and shape our identity from the core of who we are on out? From the inside out, can we let Jesus be the one that informs the core of who we are? And here's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is this. Letting Jesus inform the core of who we are can help us to navigate what it means to be a Jesus follower in an increasingly complex world. If we can start with who we are at the core of who we are and move out from there and let Jesus inform that. So I would say for such a time as this, it is critical that we know who we truly are as individuals, but also as followers of Jesus. It's critical that we know. So the book of John is what we're gonna, I mentioned it earlier, we're gonna go through the book of John for for seven weeks. And that's the longest so far in our journey through the New Testament that we've gone through a book. And so what I'm inviting you to join in is recognizing that the gospel of John has one very specific goal. I mean, there's a lot of goals, but maybe one overarching goal. That's a better way to put it. And that is to disclose and reveal who Jesus is. To basically reveal to us Jesus' identity. That's one of the main goals of the book of John. It's a little bit different. As you're reading through it, you'll notice it's a little bit different than some of the other books. For instance, if you read through Mark, you'll notice that Jesus is kind of um, constantly asking people to keep his divinity a secret to hold that back and not tell anybody. And it's kind of curious that he does that. But here in John, that's not what's happening. So it's just interesting that the different, there's different reasons that the different authors do this. But in John, we see who Jesus is from right off the bat. And there's one specific way that we see this throughout. And that is through the I am statements of Jesus. Maybe you've heard of this before. In the book of John, there's seven statements where Jesus says, I am, and then he finishes the sentence. And every time Jesus says the phrase, I am, what we need to remember and kind of put our our hats on and think about the whole story of God, the whole Bible, that's always a throwback to the fact that he's God. Because we know that when God spoke to Moses in Exodus 16, God said, I am the great I am. I am who I am. This is what he said. And so it's this interesting thing where, where God says to Moses, when Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am who I am. It's almost like the reality of who God is, is so big that God can't finish the sentence okay God just says I am okay and so fortunately for us God thought it was best to send Jesus as a human form of God and Jesus is willing to give us some descriptions that we can get our heads around a little bit I I would say that we can kind of get our heads around so just bear with me as we go through these you'll see what I mean that these are all different ways of thinking about who Jesus is but none of them are complete in and, and of themselves okay so here's the seven I'll put them up here on the screen The seven I am statements, the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the vine, the way and the truth and the life. And so you might have heard some of those or all of those before, but either way, we're going to go through them together. And if you want to take it up a couple nerd notches, right, John Dunn, you want to take it up a couple nerd notches, you can know, he knows this stuff, Professor John, you can look for all the times that the author, John, not John Dunn, the author of the gospel, reference is seven. It's all the time. It's his favorite number. It's often called the number of completion. And uh, we'll talk a few weeks later about why that is. But if you want to just take it up a couple of nerd notches, you look for those sevens. You can find them. You might have to be really intentional. But this is what is happening here. So in the season of Lent, we're going to do this. We're going to discover how it's in who Jesus says he is that we find out who we truly are and who we're meant to be. Let me say that again. It's in who Jesus tells us that he is that we can find out who we truly are and who we are, are meant to be. So right away in the first chapter of John, there's this strange encounter that goes on, okay? I think it's kind of strange. You let me know, okay? So what happens is Jesus' cousin John, there's so many Johns, I'm sorry, it's very confusing. Just try to stay with me. Another John, John the Baptist, Jesus' Jesus' cousin John, he's got some followers, and and John, right away in the first chapter, sees Jesus coming, and he says to his followers, Behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God's chosen one. John was kind of like that, just kind of saying things, and so he did that. And so some of his followers were like, ooh, that's interesting, and they were curious about Jesus. And so they start following him, like literally following him, like creeping after him, okay? So Jesus is like maybe having one of those, like, what is that song about feeling like someone's watching you? So he's having this moment and he's like, whoa, whoa. He turns around and he sees that there's literally two people following him. And Jesus asks him this question that I think is really interesting. It's the first time we see Jesus say anything in the book of John. And he says, what do you want? <laughs> he says, what do you want? Okay. I don't know his tone, but uh, I don't think that's a good one to start with either. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, what's your name? Hey, what do you want? Like not, not good. But if somebody was creeping after you, that's probably what you would say too, right? Or you would just be bolting off in the other direction. And so he says this question, what do you want? But this is an important question. It's not actually meant, in my opinion, to be breezed over because it's the first thing that Jesus says recorded in the book of John. He's saying, what do you want? What do you seek? What do you desire? And I think it's intentional that this is the first thing and we shouldn't blow by it because this question is connected to this first I am statement of Jesus that we're going to talk about today. Jesus, in a few chapters later, John 6, 35, I'll put it up here on the screen, he says this very, I think, relatively well-known statement now. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Do you kind of see the connection there with, what do you want? You hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you desire something? What do you want? The first I am statement of Jesus, I am the bread of life. And it's right smack in the middle of the longest chapter in the whole book of John, okay? It's 70 verses, chapter 6. So we're going to read the whole thing, ready? That was a joke. I'm not going to do that. But what I will point out, even though we're not going to read all of it, hopefully you'll read it this week in your reading, um, but you'll see that there is a lot that Jesus is saying here. In fact, I took a picture of, of these two pages in my Bible, and you can see, put the lines around it. This is all the stuff in my Bible, Jesus' words are red, this is everything that is in red this is all that Jesus is saying in this one section here so we're not going to read all of it today but some of it and what's happening here and maybe important for us to point out is that this is a kind of of uh Jewish traditional way of speaking as a rabbi called Midrash Midrash so this is a way this was common he's unfolding an Old Testament passage and he's applying it to today and you'll see he's applying it to himself So maybe for our brains, we can think of it as like a mashup between like a rabbinic type sermon and like a rabbinic Bible study type thing. Not exactly the same, but that's the idea where people are interacting with him, but he's also declaring some things here. And so that's why it's longer. He's kind of giving this teaching. He's unpacking the Old Testament. He's applying it to the time. And what he is doing is he's situating himself as the Messiah, the very upfront Messiah in this book, as as connected to the big story of God through the Old Testament, you're gonna see him do that. But sometimes the words of Jesus that have become more familiar or maybe even famous, have been got, like they kind of get lost in the context of what's going on in that passage. And so while I don't want you to get overly concerned with where the chapter headings are, because that's not in the original text, but people are trying to help us organize our thoughts. And so chapter six is long for a reason. And I think it's because the stories that happen leading up to what Jesus says, I am the bread of life, are kind of critical for us to understand the depth of meaning of what he's saying when he says, I am the bread of life. So can I just tell you these two events really quick? So the first one is a version of the story of feeding of the 5,000. So uh, the chapter six opens up with Jesus. He's with this crowd. There's 5,000 men, which means who knows how many women and children were also there that aren't numbered in that first century way. And so it's clear in the text that it's going to take half of a year's wages to be able to buy enough food for one meal for that group of people. And so people are anxious about that reality. So that's probably like, uh, that, that would have been like um, minimum wage back then. So this is probably like $15,000 today. $15,000 just to feed all these people for one meal. And so the story goes that this boy offers five loaves of bread and two fish and Jesus multiplies it so that everybody has as much as they want and then there's some left over. Some of you might have thought about that story before. But then I wanna point out what it says in the text right afterwards that sometimes we might miss. Jesus just did something amazing, right? That's amazing. Five little pieces of bread. The little boy's like, what? And then that happens. Okay, but then this is what happens. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Okay, so Jesus, instead of going around kissing babies, shaking hands, wasn't that cool? He runs up in a mountain to hide from all the people because he, being God, knows that they're going to try to make him king by force is the way that it's put here. Now, I don't think I blame him. It does not sound good to be forced to do anything by a mob of 5,000, 10,000 people, obviously. But these are Jewish people at this time in the first century who are under a pretty oppressive Roman rule at this time. So, What do these people want? I want you to pay attention through this story. What is it that people want? That original question of Jesus. These people have a deep desire or a deep want to have a powerful king and leader that can throw off the Roman rule by force and by might. You can imagine why they want that, right? They're feeling weighed down and controlled. They want a powerful political leader to be a short-term problem solver for their problems. That's what they want. That's what they desire. It's really clear here in this text. And Jesus knows that this is not the type of king that he is. And it's not the type of kingdom that he's leading. It's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Okay, so then right away it goes into the next event. The next event happens right after this, starting in verse 16. Jesus is hiding away on the mountain. And the disciples are like, well, Jesus isn't here. So they get into a boat and they're traveling across a lake to get to the other side. The lake was probably like seven miles wide. So they're heading to the other side, and they get out into the middle of the boat. It says it's dark already, and all of a sudden, the winds break out. It's kind of predictable at this point, right? So <laughs> they go out in the middle of the lake without, without Jesus. A storm breaks out. The wind and the waves are blowing around. It's dark, and Jesus starts walking on the water out to them because he's probably thinking, okay, they're freaking out. I probably should come help them out. And so Jesus starts walking on the water, but it's dark. They can't tell that it's him, so they're really freaked out. And what we need to stop and mention right here is that John, once again, is always pointing out the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. In the whole story of God leading up till now, there are people who part the sea, part a lake in half. There are people who are able by God to make water do certain things, but only Yahweh God stands upon the water. So this is a pretty big, bold move by John. Jesus isn't just like, cool party trick. Jesus is like, this is me being God, okay? And he's walking out to them. They realize it's him, they stop freaking out, and then they let him into the boat. That's nice of him, to let him into the boat. And so uh, as he gets into the boat, boom, the boat is on the other side. All right, my father-in-law just texted me, it's about the size of Lake Mille Lacs. Thank you for that, I see that on my iPad. So it's about the size of Lake Mille Lacs. They're in the middle of Lake Mille Lacs, and Jesus steps into the boat and it's like teleported to the other side, okay? So once again, what is John trying to do? John is trying to say, that he just teleported an entire boat full of freaked out dudes quite a few miles to the other end of the shore. And so John is pointing out, seriously, this guy is God or Dr. Who, but probably God, right? Like you made it to the other side, you teleported a boat. All right, but then the text just moves on. It just says that that happened and it just moves on. But before we move on, what is it that the disciples want? In this story, the disciples desire is to be safe, right? And secure. They're scared, they want to be safe, they want to be comforted. This is clearly what their desire is in the text. So then we go from those two events. The next day, people are looking all over for Jesus. Now that makes sense. They are looking for him. It makes sense if he provided food for that big of a group of people. You can see why. In that time, historically, Roman leaders or Roman emperors, they would provide food for large groups of people. But the reason that they did that was to gain their political support and they're political, um, they, they wanted people to be, to be uh, you know, partial to them. So they would come and maybe feed a lot of hungry people, and uh, people would be interested then to see if they're going to do that more than once. And so when people are hungry, that works pretty well as a tactic to get people to do what you want. And so these folks feel like maybe this is what's happening here, so they're looking for Jesus, they're trying to find him. And then we see here Jesus begins to speak to them, okay? Not yet in the midrash, but he's about to jump into that Midrash way of speaking. So I'm gonna read some of this. We'll have it up for you here on the screen. Jesus says, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And it says, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, the signs that I was God, but you ate the loaves and had your fill. That's why you're looking for me. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Then they asked him. They're in this kind of didactic setting. They asked him, "What must we do to the works? What, what must we do to do the works God requires?" That's the question that they have for him. It makes sense. Jesus answered, "The work of God is this: to believe in the one He has sent." I want to say here that another way we could translate the word "believe" is to trust in. Okay, pistio. To trust in the one He has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What is this that we, what is it that you will do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, so they, right now in this setting, they have now quoted Exodus 16. All right, they have now quoted this part of Exodus 16. And the manna that God gave Moses. So, um, oh yeah, earlier. So Moses is in, he hears from God in Exodus 3, and then here we are in Exodus 16. They're in the middle of the wilderness, and God is giving them food uh, in the form of manna or this form of bread, okay? So if you know the story. So now that, that, that these, these people have lobbed this Old Testament passage, this Torah passage to Jesus, Jesus is like, okay then, and he decides to jump into Midrash and to say, all right, well, let's unpack what was happening then and what that means for what's happening now, okay? Does that sound familiar? So that's what he's doing. So he is on cue and he starts to unpack what this passage has to do with him. So listen for how Jesus is trying to help them understand a history that they would have talked about every day of their lives and what that matters for them today. So we'll pick it up in verse 32. Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. "'Sir,' they said, "'always give us this bread.'" Or we could read it as, "'Sir, we want that bread.'" We want that. Then Jesus declared, here's the verse, "'I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will.'" but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Stay with me here. Think about how he's blowing their minds about the past. And this is the will of him who sent me, of Yahweh, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up the last day. He's talking about resurrection here. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes and trusts in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. So it, it, then it goes from there, and it kind of goes back and forth. They're kind of going back and forth to Jesus for a while. But here's a question again. What do they want? Why do they say, we want that bread? Because they want to be satisfied, right? They want to be satisfied. You can just see in the story. It's just right out there on their sleeves what they want. They desire to be satisfied. Jesus has given them this thought. You could have bread that won't cause you to be hungry every, ever again. And if you're someone who is poor or relatively poor... Thinking about how you're getting your sustenance on a daily basis is a big part of your life. And so they undoubtedly are like, we want to be satisfied, we want to be secure, we want to know where we can get that bread. And then Jesus gives them this response. He says, they can't work for this type of bread. Did you notice that? He said, you can't work for the type of bread. You work for the bread that spoils, that's okay. But you can't work for this bread that I'm going to give you. In fact, and he says, actually, the work that you can do is the work to trust in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like work, doesn't it? To trust in the midst of everything going on in our lives, to trust Jesus. Here they are looking at physical Jesus, and we're trying to figure out how to do that. It's work to trust in Jesus. And most of the people in this story, they think we can't trust this guy. They're like, isn't this Joseph's son? Why is he talking about coming down from heaven, which is what he just said? Like, why is he talking about that? We know where he was born. We know who his dad is. And then to make matters weirder, this is what I think happens. Jesus makes matters weirder, and he says to them later on something like this in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So then it says they begin to argue amongst themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? So now Jesus has these skeptical people thinking that he is perpetuating cannibalism, okay? (laughs) This is what's happening. You have to remember that was before communion or Eucharist was a practice. Those crowds had not thought about that before. And so they're freaking out. And uh, Jesus hasn't died yet. And we know that Jesus tries to warn people about that, but they still don't see that coming. And so if you remember where they're at at that time, you can see how weird it sounds for him to say that. And some of us, if we're honest, it still sounds a little bit weird what Jesus is trying to say. So Jesus says some more cryptic things that I'll be honest, they do sound like cannibalism, okay? It sounds like that. And so Jesus says some more cryptic things and then he says to the people who are there, look, if you're offended, then bye. <laughs> he just says you can leave if you're offended. And then people do because that's kind of what it sounded like. And then he turns to his disciples and he says this. He says, do you want to leave too? Hear that again, the want. He's appealing to their wants again. So what do you want? Do you want to leave? And Peter says, you have the words of eternal life and we trust you can you think about being Peter for a second? You have to be pretty confused at this moment. There is no way that Peter had it all figured out or that Peter could explain it easily. Peter's mind is blown, yet Peter says, you know what? I'm going to trust you. And I think that that's part of that work of trusting, even when we don't always understand. So is anybody with me that this is a pretty intense chapter? Yeah, okay. pretty intense, if you ask me. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, which seems kind of poetic, except you look at where it's situated in the story, and it's pretty intense. And I can see why this crowd of people are being drawn to him. So if Jesus is the bread of life, then who are these other people? They're the hungry people, right? They're literally and figuratively hungry. So Jesus gives them literal bread, and then figuratively, spiritually says that believing in him is the bread of life. So that's an identity statement. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So then we can see ourselves as people who have wants and desires. I'm sure we all do. Then we are also the hungry. That's a sense of who we are. We are hungry. We're filled with wants. And Jesus is okay with wants and desires, but you can see him directly confronting just what exactly they're hungry for. So let me just go through the, the ways that he confronts and contrasts. So in Midrash, it would be very common to say this is the old way of thinking, this is the new way of thinking. The old way, the new way. So I'll put it up this way. Jesus is confronting the old manna in Exodus 16 and he's saying here's the new manna, this new way of thinking about the, 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 who he is as the bread of life. So the old manna is the physical bread and then we have the relationship with Jesus, the bread of life, as this metaphorical spiritual new manna. There is a daily tense of sense of satisfaction, like temporary satisfaction, and then there is nourishment for the soul that's going to ultimately result in eternal fulfillment. You hear Jesus contrasting those two things? And then we see Jesus contrast a powerful political leader, a king by force that they want, but Jesus offers himself, we see, as a suffering servant king, offering his very life. And then we see people wanting safety and security from the storm, right? But Jesus is offering an invitation to trust him in the midst of the storm. And apparently offering to teleport sometimes, but I have never had that happen for me, but that's what he's offering, okay? He's offering a relationship of trust in the midst of the storm. So I don't blame them for wanting these things. You know, on a good day, I want the things that Jesus wants for me, but on a bad day and maybe most days, I feel just like these guys. I feel just like these gals. I just want these things. I just want temporary satisfaction for now. I just want to know I'm safe and secure. I just want to not be somebody who's vulnerable towards people who might be enemies. I just want that. And I think if we're honest, we can recognize that in ourselves. But here's what's so crucial, and I think this is what Jesus is hoping that we see. Our wants and our desires are not neutral. They shape us. They shape who we are. I love this book, I highly recommend it. It's called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith, a professor, and this is what he says. I'll put a quote of his on the, on the screen. Discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where God is all in all. A vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. So I'm going to offer, as we're kicking off this series, two questions for you to take with you today in one practice, okay? I might sneak a third question in there, but just don't worry about it. The first question is to ask ourselves, what do I want? Not what am I supposed to want, but what do I want? Let's just start there with being honest. I think that God can handle our honesty around that. I think Jesus is open to it. I think about all the other narratives that are competing for our desire, right? The first ones that come to mind for me are like narratives of power and control, narratives of consumerism, narratives of appearance and beauty and things like that. These narratives are swarming around us and they all seem to scream at us, what do you want? Don't you want this? Who do you think you are? I feel like that is just screaming at me through my phone, through the radio, through other people, through the context all the time. And if you want to be powerful, then you will think of your identity as either weak or strong. If you want to be attractive, then you will think of your identity as either appealing or beautiful or ugly or not appealing. If you want more money, more things, more pleasure, you'll think of yourself as rich or poor. If you want to be significant, you will think of yourself as worthy or as unworthy. What we desire and what we want matters because it shapes who we think we are. Let me say it again. What we desire and what we want matters because it shapes who we think we are. Yet Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Have you noticed that it's not second nature to want the things that Jesus wants for us? I just feel like anybody I've ever met, it doesn't come naturally, right? Jesus as the bread of life and the blood, it's not about cannibalism, let's just clear that up right now, okay? It's not about that. But it represents this relationship with him. This idea that we can abide in his love and he can abide in us. It's a communication about just how close, how with us Jesus wants to be. Do you see how that, that with you God, Jesus did everything necessary, giving his very life and coming back from the dead, to to overcome all of the brokenness in the world, to be truly with us. This is what he's trying to say. And if we want to, that relationship with Jesus leads us to be more like Jesus. It leads us to live and think and feel and act like him. It leads us to be people whose hearts take on Jesus' heart of self-sacrifice and a motivation in our life to be about other people and loving our neighbor. And in turn, we get to live Life to the full now and forever. This is Jesus' opportunity for us. Free from hunger pangs, free from desperate thirst. That's our future hope. So second question we can ask ourselves. How do I let Jesus shape my desire? How do I let Jesus shape my desire? So Professor Smith here, he offers two suggestions. Imitation and practice. Okay? Sometimes I think we give imitation a bad rap, like it's being inauthentic in some way or mimicking. But think of it more like a child who's learning how to be an adult. They're going to mimic what the adults around them do, for better or for worse, right? So hypothetically, if you show your five-year-old nephew that on your phone a poop emoji can become your face, they're going to want to imitate that all the time, hypothetically. So this is the question for us. Can we imitate Jesus? Can we try, even if it doesn't feel natural at first, can we try to live and think and feel and act like him? and then can we practice? Can we get other people to practice with us? That's one of the reasons we have missional communities because we can get together and figure out how to practice shaping our hearts to be more like Jesus. Now practice doesn't make perfect, but it does make things easier. It does make things feel more second nature. So I would say that there's many ways to practice the way of Jesus, but spiritual practices are one of them. Sometimes people call them spiritual disciplines, but maybe instead of thinking of spiritual practices as something that's kind of rote or something we're just supposed to do or something that is just legalistic or something like that, maybe we could think of it as these are hunger-shaping rituals. These are things that can cause us to be, have hunger from God. for God. It doesn't come naturally to most people. It has to be cultivated. Hunger for God is a habit that we choose. Hunger for God is a habit, not necessarily a whim or something we just do. When we, it feels like it, but it's not legalistic either. In fact, let me give you one more quote from Professor Smith. He says, The best gifts God could give you is spirit-infused practices that will reform and retrain your loves, your wants, your desires. And so God meets us where we are with counter-formative practices, with hunger-shaping rituals, and love-shaping liturgies. So for for us in Lent, a lot of times this is a very common time to pick up and try some spiritual practices. So every week we're going to encourage you just to think about considering trying one. So today I want to offer to you, because Jesus is saying I'm the bread of life, I want to offer to you the spiritual practice of fasting. Many people fast for something during Lent, but you could start small and just do it for a day or a week or something like that. And all it is is saying I'm going to take something out of my life, sometimes food. It could be something else. I know someone that's going to fast from sleeping in on the weekends. That sounds harder than food in some ways. And so then you, take, you, you lay down something and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Then I'm going to pick up something else that's going to help me get centered on God. And so I actually made you, on the back of this little sheet that you can pick up after communion, there's a list of things that you can lay down and things that you can take up just to give it a try. I did put dad jokes as one of the things you could lay down because I think some of you might want to pray about that one. So that's just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, whoever that was, you know who you are. So there's lots of different things we can do, but we're just going to offer different things to you each week to say, what are some of those hunger for God shaping habits that we can have in our life? What would it look like for us to to pick up things that help us be centered on who God is in our life? I'm gonna have the band come up. I wanna talk, I just wanna say, the final thing I wanna ask you is, a question we can ask ourselves is, do I want to want more of God? Do I want to want more of God? So maybe if we don't find ourselves in that place, like I often don't, it's because we don't remember what more of God means. So here's my reminder for you of what more of God means. It means more justice, more mercy, more truth, more patience, more love, more release from the grip of shame, more freedom from the captives, more provision for the poor, more family for the lonely, more forgiveness for our faults, more reconciliation between people, more fulfillment from Jesus and a life to the full, more peace in the midst of the storms, more healing physically, spiritually, and emotionally. I want to want more of God. And I hope that's what you want too. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask God that you would fill our hearts, our desires, our wants for more of you. Jesus, we pray that you would come into this space even now and to help us to choose to pick up heart-shaping habits that will form our hearts towards being centered on who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.